0: Section One of Bartleby the Scrivener A Story of Wall Street. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Tassinari. Bartleby the Scrivener A Story of Wall Street by Herman Melville. I am a rather elderly man. The nature of my avocations for the last thirty years has brought me into more than ordinary contact with what would seem an interesting and somewhat singular set of men, of whom as yet nothing that I know of has ever been written. I mean the law copyists, or scriveners. I have known very many of them, professionally and privately, and if I pleased, could relate diverse histories, at which good-natured gentlemen might smile, and sentimental souls might weep. But I waive the biographies of all other scriveners for a few passages in the life of Bartleby, who was a scrivener of the strangest I ever saw or heard of. While of other law copyists I might write the complete life, of Bartleby nothing of that sort can be done. I believe that no materials exist for a full and satisfactory biography of this man. It is an irreparable loss to literature. Bartleby was one of those beings of whom nothing is ascertainable, except from the original sources, and in his case those are very small. What my own astonished eyes saw of Bartleby, that is all I know of him, except, indeed, one vague report which will appear in the sequel. Ere introducing the Scrivener, as he first appeared to me, it is fit I make some mention of myself, my employees, my business, my chambers, and general surroundings, because some such description is indispensable to an adequate understanding of the chief character about to be presented. Imprimis I am a man who, from his youth upwards, has been filled with a profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best. Hence, though I belong to a profession proverbially energetic and nervous, even to turbulence at times, yet nothing of that sort have I ever suffered to invade my peace. I am one of those unambitious lawyers, who never addresses a jury, or in any way draws down public applause. But in the cool tranquility of a snug retreat, a snug business among rich men's bonds and mortgages and title deeds. All who know me consider me an eminently safe man. The late John Jacob Astor, a personage little given to poetic enthusiasm, had no hesitation in pronouncing my first grand point to be prudence, my next method. I do not speak it in vanity, but simply record the fact that I was not unemployed in my profession by the late John Jacob Astor a name which, I admit, I love to repeat, for it hath a rounded and orbicular sound to it, and rings like unto bullion. I will freely add that I was not insensible to the late John Jacob Astor's good opinion. Sometime prior to the period at which this little history begins, my avocations had been largely increased. The good old office, now extinct in the state of New York, of a master in chancery, had been conferred upon me, it was not a very arduous office, but very pleasantly remunerative. I seldom lose my temper, much more seldom indulge in dangerous indignation at wrongs and outrages, but I must be permitted to be rash here and declare that I consider the sudden and violent abrogation of the office of master and chancery by the new constitution as a premature act, inasmuch as I had counted upon a life lease of the profits, whereas I only received those of a few short years." But this is by the way. My chambers were upstairs at Number Blank Wall Street. At one end they looked upon the white wall of the interior of a spacious skylight shaft, penetrating the building from top to bottom. This view might have been considered rather tame than otherwise, deficient in what landscape painters call life. But if so, the view from the other end of my chambers offered at least a contrast, if nothing more. In that direction my windows commanded an unobstructed view of a lofty brick wall, black by age and everlasting shade, which wall required no spyglass to bring out its lurking beauties, but for the benefit of all near-sighted spectators, was pushed up to within ten feet of my window panes. Owing to the great height of the surrounding buildings, and my chambers being on the second floor, the interval between this wall and mine not a little resembled a huge square cistern, At the period just preceding the advent of Bartleby, I had two persons as copyists in my employment, and a promising lad as an office boy. First, Turkey, second, Nippers, third, Ginger Nut. These may seem names, the like of which are not usually found in the directory. In truth, they were nicknames, mutually conferred upon each other by my three clerks, and were deemed expressive of their respective persons or characters. Turkey was a short, percy Englishman of about my own age, that is, somewhere not far from sixty. In the morning, one might say, his face was of a fine florid hue, but after twelve o'clock meridian, his dinner hour, it blazed like a grate full of Christmas coals, and continued blazing, but, as it were, with a gradual wane, till six o'clock p.m. or thereabouts, after which I saw no more of the proprietor of the face, which gaining its meridian with the sun, seemed to set with it, to rise, culminate, and decline the following day, with the like regularity and undiminished glory. There are many singular coincidences I have known in the course of my life, not the least among which was the fact that exactly when Turkey displayed his fullest beams from his red and radiant countenance, just then, too, at that critical moment, began the daily period when I considered his business capacities as seriously disturbed for the remainder of the twenty-four hours. Not that he was absolutely idle or averse to business then, far from it. The difficulty was he was apt to be altogether too energetic. There was a strange, inflamed, flurried, flighty recklessness of activity about him. He would be incautious in dipping his pen into his inkstand all his blots upon my documents were dropped there after twelve o'clock meridian indeed not only would he be reckless and sadly given to making blots in the afternoon but some days he went further and was rather noisy at such times too his face flamed with augmented blazonry as if cannel coal had been heaped on anthracite he made an unpleasant racket with his chair spilled his sand box in mending his pens impatiently split them all to pieces and threw them on the floor in a sudden passion, stood up and leaned over his table, boxing his papers about in a most indecorous manner, very sad to behold in an elderly man like him. Nevertheless, as he was in many ways a most valuable person to me, and all the time before twelve o'clock meridian, was the quickest, steadiest creature, too, accomplishing a great deal of work in a style not easy to be matched." For these reasons I was willing to overlook his eccentricities, though indeed, occasionally, I remonstrated with him. I did this very gently, however, because, though the civilest, nay, the blandest and most reverential of men in the morning, yet in the afternoon he was disposed, upon provocation, to be slightly rash with his tongue, in fact insolent. Now, valuing his morning services as I did, and resolved not to lose them, yet at the same time made uncomfortable by his inflamed ways after twelve o'clock, and being a man of peace, unwilling by my admonitions to call forth unseemly retorts from him. I took upon me one Saturday noon, he was always worse on Saturdays, to hint to him very kindly that, perhaps now that he was growing old, it might be well to abridge his labors. In short, he need not come to my chambers after twelve o'clock." "'but, dinner over, had best go home to his lodgings "'and rest himself till tea-time. "'But no, he insisted upon his afternoon devotions. "'His countenance became intolerably fervid, "'as he oratorically assured me, "'gesticulating with a long ruler at the other end of the room, "'that if his services in the morning were useful, "'how indispensable, then, in the afternoon!' "'With submission, sir,' said Turkey on this occasion, "'I consider myself your right-hand man.' In the morning I but marshal and deploy my columns, but in the afternoon I put myself at their head, and gallantly charge the foe thus, and he made a violent thrust with the ruler. But the blot's turkey, intimated I. True, but, with submission, sir, behold these hairs. I am getting old. Surely, sir, a blot or two of a warm afternoon is not to be severely urged against gray hairs. Old age, even if it blot the page, is honorable.' "'With submission, sir, we both are getting old.' This appeal to my fellow-feeling was hardly to be resisted. At all events I saw that, go, he would not. So I made up my mind to let him stay, resolving nevertheless, to see to it, that during the afternoon he had to do with my less important papers. Nippers, the second on my list, was a whiskered, sallow, and upon the whole rather piratical-looking young man of about five and twenty. I always deemed him the victim of two evil powers, ambition and indigestion. The ambition was evinced by a certain impatience of the duties of a mere copyist, an unwarrantable usurpation of strictly professional affairs, such as the original drawing up of legal documents. The indigestion seemed betokened in an occasional nervous testiness and grinning irritability, causing the teeth to audibly grind together over mistakes committed in copying unnecessary maledictions, hissed rather than spoken, in the heat of business, and especially by a continual discontent with the height of the table where he worked. Though of a very ingenious mechanical turn, Nippers could never get this table to suit him. He put chips under it, blocks of various sorts, bits of pasteboard, and at last went so far as to attempt an exquisite adjustment by final pieces of folded blotting paper, but no invention would answer. If, for the sake of easing his back, he brought the table lid at a sharp angle well up towards his chin, and wrote there like a man using the steep roof of a Dutch house for his desk, then he declared that it stopped the circulation in his arms. If now he lowered the table to his waistbands, and stooped over it in writing, then there was a sore aching in his back. In short, the truth of the matter was, Nippers knew not what he wanted, or, if he wanted anything, it was to be rid of a scrivener's table altogether." Among the manifestations of his diseased ambition was a fondness he had for receiving visits from certain ambiguous-looking fellows in seedy coats, whom he called his clients. Indeed, I was aware that not only was he at times considerable of a ward politician, but he occasionally did a little business at the justices' courts, and was not unknown on the steps of the tombs. I have good reason to believe, however, that one individual who called upon him at my chambers And who, with a grand air, he insisted was his client, was no other than a dun, and the alleged title deed a bill. But, with all his failings and the annoyances he caused me, Nippers, like his compatriot Turkey, was a very useful man to me, wrote in neat swift hand, and, when he chose, was not deficient in a gentlemanly sort of deportment. Added to this, he always dressed in a gentlemanly sort of way, and so incidentally reflected credit upon my chambers. Whereas, with respect to Turkey, I had much ado to keep him from being a reproach to me. His clothes were apt to look oily and smell of eating-houses. He wore his pantaloons very loose and baggy in summer. His coats were execrable, his hat not to be handled. But while the hat was a thing of indifference to me, inasmuch as his natural civility and deference, as a dependent Englishman, always led him to doff it the moment he entered the room, yet his coat was another matter. Concerning his coats, I reasoned with him, but with no effect. The truth was, I suppose, that a man of so small an income could not afford to sport such a lustrous face and a lustrous coat at one and the same time. As Nippers once observed, Turkey's money went chiefly for red ink. One winter day I presented Turkey with a highly respectable-looking coat of my own, a padded gray coat of a most comfortable warmth, and which buttoned straight up from the knee to the neck. I thought Turkey would appreciate the favor and abate his rashness and obstreperousness of afternoons. But no. I verily believe that buttoning himself up in so downy and blanket-like a coat had a pernicious effect upon him, upon the same principle that too much oats are bad for horses. In fact, precisely as a rash, restive horse is said to feel his oats, so Turkey felt his coat. It made him insolent. He was a man whom prosperity harmed. Though concerning the self-indulgent habits of Turkey I had my own private surmises, yet touching nippers I was well persuaded that, whatever might be his faults in other respects, he was at least a temperate young man. But indeed nature herself seemed to have been his vintner, and at his birth charged him so thoroughly with an irritable brandy-like disposition, that all subsequent potations were needless when i consider how amid the stillness of my chambers nippers would sometimes impatiently rise from his seat and stooping over his table spread his arms wide apart seize the whole desk and move it and jerk it with a grim grinding motion on the floor as if the table were a perverse voluntary agent intent on thwarting and vexing him i plainly perceived that for nippers brandy and water were altogether superfluous It was fortunate for me that, owing to its peculiar cause, indigestion, the irritability and consequent nervousness of Nippers were mainly observable in the morning, while in the afternoon he was comparatively mild, so that Turkey's paroxysms, only coming on about twelve o'clock, I never had to do with their eccentricities at one time. Their fits relieved each other like guards. When Nippers was on, Turkey's was off, and vice versa. This was a good natural arrangement under the circumstances." Ginger Nut, the third on my list, was a lad some twelve years old. His father was a car man, ambitious of seeing his son on the bench instead of a cart before he died. So he sent him to my office as student-at-law, errand-boy, and cleaner and sweeper at the rate of one dollar a week. He had a little desk to himself, but he did not use it much. Upon inspection, the drawer exhibited a great array of the shells of various sorts of nuts, Indeed, to this quick-witted youth the whole noble science of the law was contained in a nutshell. Not the least among the employments of Ginger Nut, as well as one which he discharged with the most alacrity, was his duty as cake-and-apple purveyor for turkey and nippers. Copying law-papers being proverbially dry, husky sort of business, my two scriveners were fain to moisten their mouths very often with spitzenbergs to be had at the numerous stalls nigh the custom-house and post-office. Also they sent ginger nut very frequently for that peculiar cake, small, flat, round, and very spicy, after which he had been named by them. Of a cold morning, when business was but dull, turkey would gobble up scores of these cakes, as if they were mere wafers. Indeed, they sell them at the rate of six or eight for a penny, the scrape of his pen blending with the crunching of the crisp particles in his mouth. Of all the fiery afternoon blunders and flurried rashnesses of turkey... "'was his once moistening a ginger-cake between his lips "'and clapping it on to a mortgage for a seal. "'I came within an ace of dismissing him, then. "'But he mollified me by making an oriental bow and saying, "'With submission, sir, it was generous of me "'to find you in stationery on my own account. "'Now my original business, "'that of a conveyancer and title-hunter, "'and drawer-up of recondite documents of all sorts, "'was considerably increased by receiving the master's office.' There was now great work for Scriveners. Not only must I push the clerks already with me, but I must have additional help. In answer to my advertisement, a motionless young man one morning stood upon my office threshold, the door being open, for it was summer. I can see that figure now, pallidly neat, pitiably respectable, incurably forlorn. It was Bartleby. After a few words touching his qualifications, I engaged him glad to have among my corps of copyists a man of so singularly sedate an aspect, which I thought might operate beneficially upon the flighty temper of Turkey and the fiery one of Nippers. I should have stated before that ground-glass folding doors divided my premises into two parts, one of which was occupied by my scriveners, the other by myself. According to my humor, I threw open these doors or closed them. I resolved to assign Bartleby a corner by the folding doors, but on my side of them so as to have this quiet man within easy call in case any trifling thing was to be done i placed his desk close up to a small side window in that part of the room a window which originally had afforded a lateral view of certain grimy backyards and bricks but which owing to subsequent erections commanded at present no view at all though it gave some light within 3 feet of the panes was a wall and the light came down from far above between two lofty buildings As from a very small opening in a dome. Still further to a satisfactory arrangement, I procured a high green folding screen, which might entirely isolate Bartleby from my sight, though not remove him from my voice, and thus in a manner privacy and society were conjoined. At first, Bartleby did an extraordinary quantity of writing. As if long famishing for something to copy, he seemed to gorge himself on my documents. There was no pause for digestion. He ran a day and night line, copying by sunlight and by candlelight. I should have been quite delighted with his application, had he been cheerfully industrious. But he wrote on silently, palely, mechanically. It is, of course, an indispensable part of a scrivener's business to verify the accuracy of his copy, word by word. Where there are two or more scriveners in an office, they assist each other in this examination, one reading from the copy, the other holding the original. It is a very dull, wearisome, and lethargic affair. I can readily imagine that to some sanguine temperaments it would be altogether intolerable. For example, I cannot credit that the meddlesome poet Byron would have contentedly sat down with Bartleby to examine a law document of, say, five hundred pages, closely written in a crimpy hand. Now and then, in the haste of business, it had been my habit to assist in comparing some brief document myself, calling turkey or nippers for this purpose. One object I had in placing Bartleby so handy to me behind the screen was to avail myself of his services on such trivial occasions. It was on the third day, I think, of his being with me, and before any necessity had arisen for having his own writing examined, that, being much hurried to complete a small affair I had in hand, I abruptly called to Bartleby. In my haste and natural expectancy of instant compliance, I sat with my head bent over the original on my desk, and my right hand sideways, and somewhat nervously extended with the copy, so that immediately upon emerging from his retreat, Bartleby might snatch it and proceed to business without the least delay. In this very attitude did I sit when I called to him, rapidly stating what it was I wanted him to do, namely to examine a small paper with me. Imagine my surprise, nay, my consternation, when, without moving from his privacy, Bartleby, in a singularly mild, firm voice, replied, I would prefer not to. I sat a while in perfect silence, rallying my stunned faculties. Immediately it occurred to me that my ears had deceived me, or Bartleby had entirely misunderstood my meaning. I repeated my request in the clearest tone I could assume, but in quite as clear a one came the previous reply, I would prefer not to. "'Prefer not to,' echoed I, rising in high excitement and crossing the room with a stride. "'What do you mean? Are you moonstruck? I want you to help me compare this sheet here. Take it.' And I thrust it towards him. "'I would prefer not to,' said he. I looked at him steadfastly. His face was leanly composed, his gray eye dimly calm. Not a wrinkle of agitation rippled him had there been the least uneasiness, anger, impatience, or impertinence in his manner, in other words, had there been anything ordinarily human about him, doubtless I should have violently dismissed him from the premises. But as it was, I should have as soon thought of turning my pale plaster of Paris bust of Cicero out of doors. I stood gazing at him a while, as he went on with his own writing, and then reseated myself at my desk. This is very strange, thought I. What had one best do?' but my business hurried me. I concluded to forget the matter for the present, reserving it for my future leisure. So calling nippers from the other room, the paper was speedily examined. End of section 1